Judges chapter 11 is our sermon text today, but I'll follow it up with a reading from Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Judges 11, the entire chapter, followed by Matthew 5, 33 to 37. We are, of course, in reading Judges, uh, reading of the period of the Judges. I'll explain more about that period of time, period of history, in a few moments. Judges 11, beginning at the first verse. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gideon was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now turned, returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon, For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, 
and they camped beyond the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now are you any better than Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel? Or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Minnath, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, 
since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Amen. May God grant us understanding of this difficult chapter. I'd like to uh, turn in our understanding of this matter of vows, turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Beginning at verse 33. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. The risen, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, by the hand of his own brother James, in the third chapter of his epistle, says something quite remarkable. The Spirit, speaking through James, says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well which is an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? If there's one part of the human anatomy that can be counted on to get a man into deep, deep trouble, that one part would be his tongue. His tongue. No one yet has fully mastered the tongue. No one's tamed it, but it's got to be regulated. And God's law does regulate it. God's law sets boundaries around it, like a handrail around a rooftop or a balcony. God's law protects us from the ever-present danger to ourselves, from ourselves. It sets limits beyond which we dare not go. Even with our tongues, even with our speech, there is such a thing as going too far. Now a little about this book of Judges and its place in history. 
Between Israel's conquering Canaan under Joshua in the 14th century BC and the anointing of her first king Saul in the 11th century, there stretched these 300 years or more during which time Israel ever so gradually settles in to Canaan as a loosely knit confederation of tribes, 12 tribes. Politically, it really was a pathetically weak, ineffectual political situation. The mighty God Jehovah years before at Mount Sinai had delivered his holy law to his covenant people, and he'd also given us strong leaders at that time in Moses and Joshua and their various lieutenants. Now, these weren't perfect men, but they were good men. Strong men, bold men, faithful men. God had made them so. And the role that these faithful leaders played in Israel was to secure God's blessing by enforcing his law. God's people were to be blessed and they would be blessed by the keeping of his law. In Deuteronomy 17, we find, in fact, that God had promised his people, a king to rule over them in due time. But throughout the lifetime of Moses and then Joshua and all the judges, that time hadn't yet arrived. There was no king in Israel. And so for 300 years or more, without the central leadership of a godly king, two closely related things were coming to pass in Israel. The first was this, without a king, the whole commonwealth of Israel quickly sank into this deep, dark quagmire of spiritual ignorance. They no longer knew the living and true God. They hardly knew his covenant law. Not having a king to reign over us, every man was simply doing whatever seemed right in his own eyes. Dear ones, this is the deadly peril of democracy as a political system, which is a terribly unpopular and even dangerous thing to say these days, of course. But when the inmates are running the asylum, can we realistically expect any safer, fairer, more just society than the one that's currently afflicting us? Every man does whatever's right in his own eyes. Beloved, what we really need is a king, a righteous king, God's king. And there's no better book of the Bible to illustrate this than the book of Judges. The time of the kings hadn't yet arrived. So in the absence of a king, the Holy Spirit, during this 300-year period of history, raised up and equipped various men and women here and there, now and then, to deliver his people from the second major downward demographic trend, the invasion and overrunning of God's inheritance by her pagan neighbors. 
This becomes a pattern you see all through the book of the Judges. When there's no king, the people fall into desperate ignorance of the living and true God and his covenant. This ignorance leads them downward into sin. God then sends covenant avengers to chasten and discipline them. The people who are thus afflicted cry out in their distress, and God in his mercy hears their cry and raises up deliverers. The judges, who in their own times and localities save his people from their oppressors. But then once they're delivered, the people almost immediately forget their covenant God and his law. And over and over and over again, this cycle repeats itself for 300 years. This is the revolving door we're walking into in Judges chapter 11. The Ammonites, in this case, had once possessed this particular region east of the Jordan River. Now, agriculturally, the old Ammonite land was a great region. It was fabulous for grazing livestock. Unfortunately for the Ammonite people, the Amorites had come in and dispossessed them, driven them out some generations before. So when God in turn, by the hand of Moses and the Israelites, dispossesses Sihon the Amorite and Og king of Bashan, these Ammonites now are expecting Israel simply to hand it all over back to them. After all, they say, this is our ancestral land, Ammonite land. We thank you, Israel, for defeating the Amorites and winning it back for us. But now that you've got it, hand it over. Well, that's not going to happen, say the sons of Gilead, who drove the Amorites out and now live there. Jephthah happens to be a member of the family of Gilead on his father's side. The rest of Jephthah's unhappy family situation is spelled out in the early part of this chapter. But the bottom line is that his brothers, the sons of Gilead, drive out Jephthah to live on the margins of society. They drive him out until that moment arrives when they need his military prowess and his proven leadership. They need it. Because whatever is questionable lineage, the plain fact is, Jephthah's a valiant warrior. No one can deny it, and his kinsmen, the Gileadites, need him. As he undertakes his military duties, it quickly becomes apparent that he's a gifted historian and negotiator as well. The best soldiers always are. Jephthah's read up on this Ammonite situation, and he makes his point intelligently and decisively. He tells them, we Gileadites of the sons of Israel, we owe you Ammonites precisely nothing. 
you want this land back for yourselves, then ask your God, Chemosh, for it. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has given it over to us by covenant. The facts on the ground prove it. Well, this little bit of historical leverage does nothing to persuade the Ammonites who disregard it entirely. And it's at this point that the story of Jephthah's rash vow really begins. We're at verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Filled with the Spirit of God, Jephthah's a man with a plan and he's acting on it fast. Jephthah's seizing the initiative. So far, so good. On the move, he asks God for strategic success. Also, good. Very good. Except for the fact that the Almighty God isn't one to be bargained with. Ever. Israel's experience fighting the Canaanites to gain the land in the first place should have impressed this lesson indelibly into the mind of a good soldier like Jephthah. The battle belongs to the Lord. Period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The battle belongs to the Lord. The military outcomes are always his to determine, not mine to negotiate. So it's Jephthah's tongue that now trips the mighty man up and brings him down. Under absolutely no compulsion to do so, he made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. No doubt it sounded so pious at the time. It just seemed the right thing to do in the emotional heat of the moment. But the simple fact is, God doesn't require a vow. He just requires simple obedience. And he's already addressed the problem of rash vows in Leviticus 5, verse 4, where he says, If a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, that is, he doesn't know at the moment, at that particular moment, he doesn't know the final outcome. And then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. That is, he's going to be accountable for his words. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf 
for his sin. Now we here have uh, recently read through Leviticus and considered a long, long list of offenses that called for an atoning sacrifice of one kind or another under the Old Covenant. And as we read through it, you may have thought, well, this is all very foreign and confusing to me. What use can I, a New Testament Christian, make of all this Old Testament ceremony? Jephthah's situation brings God's law into sharp focus for us. Did Jephthah sin by making this rash vow, sight unseen, not knowing the contingencies and fallout of the matter? Absolutely, yes, he sinned. Beyond question. Good men sometimes do. So does one sin ever make another sin necessary? Must Jephthah, who sinned with his lips, now sin with his hand? Must Jephthah slay his own daughter and offer her up in fire on the altar? That's the question this passage puts before us. And it's a very important point for believers of every age, Old and New Testament alike. It should put us on alert the Proverbs make this point over and over again, don't they? He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. So do you want to keep your soul free from trouble? Solomon had a solution for you. He shares it in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better for you that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Have you ever thought how wonderful it would be if you could actually unspeak something that you say. Something untrue, maybe. Or unwise. Or unkind. If you could just unspeak it, delete it. Again, the Proverbs help put this into focus for us. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Solomon there in the Proverbs uses the figure of a sword. Others liken our speech to squeezing the trigger of a loaded gun. When that gun fires, the bullet's going to hit wherever it was aimed. 
good, bad, or indifferent. The damage is done. There's no deleting the action. There's no unsqueezing the trigger. No recalling the bullet. Your words inevitably have an impact on everyone who hears them. So what must Jephthah do now? Keep his vow? Or break it? If he keeps his rash vow to the letter, then his only daughter dies. Her little body goes up in smoke. But if he doesn't, then she lives, but he's violated his vow to God. He's broken his word, for, which for a man of honor like Jephthah would be absolutely unthinkable. I've taken a few solemn vows at points in my life, which I later had some degree of cause to regret. Maybe you have too. And the question then becomes, do I press on in this? Do I press on in, for instance, a difficult marriage or this difficult office that I have solemnly undertaken? Do I press on? And it's at times like these we discover how refreshingly wonderful it is that God deals with sinners not according to our merits, but according to his own mercy. His mercy. The whole history of the world, rightly considered, is not the history of human character that's kept absolutely free from sin. It's the history of redemption from sin. God has provided us in his word a way out. Not just New Testament Christians, the Old Testament Christians as well had, in God's law, a way out of the terrible dilemmas they got themselves into. It involved confession of their sin and the sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. We've already seen this in Leviticus 5, 4 to 6. He shall confess that in which he has sinned. That's the first thing. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. If you ever want to gain a fresh perspective on the wonder of God's amazing grace in Christ, then consider Jephthah. Consider the terrible bind he put himself into with his rash vow. Beloved, I want you to understand there is a way out for the sinner. There was then for Jephthah, there is now. It involves confession of sin and the death of a substitute. The 
The only remaining question is, what then became of Jephthah's daughter? Was she actually slain and offered up in smoke at the end of those two months in the mountains with her companions? Must one terrible sin be compounded with the perpetration of yet another greater sin? And would the priests serving in God's tabernacle have permitted that anyway? Of course not. Of course not. Here's what seems to have happened. For two months with her friends in the mountains, this girl mourned the fact that she was never going to marry. As girls will do under such circumstances, there was plenty of talking together and hugging together and consoling together and weeping together for two months. Then at the end of those two months, she returned to her father, not to face the prospect of an altar as a sacrificial lamb experiences it, but to face the altar as, for instance, the young Samuel would experience it. Samuel, at about the same time frame, the period of the judges, Samuel was given by his parents to serve the Lord at the tabernacle, helping the priests at the altar in their ministry of reconciling sinners to God. So it wasn't the prospect of death she faced, but of life, a life of service. And yet it was a life she'd never, ever envisioned for herself. Redemption's a little like that, isn't it? God leads us in paths of righteousness that take us in unsought directions that aren't immediately clear to us. But it's redemption. It's the purchase of blood out of death and into an entirely new life of service. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for sinners a way out of our sin and guilt. We thank you for the many happy endings to our sad stories that your gospel has brought to generations of lost people, fools and sinners. We pray that we would trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one acceptable sacrifice for sin, that we would led by, be led by your Holy Spirit to confess our sins freely, not to hide them, but to confess them and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our deliverance. These things we humbly ask in his precious name. Amen.